0: And I'm Rhea.
1: And this is Ether DiCor, a podcast about the stories behind stories in folklore, fairy tales, mythology, and the gothic. This week, we're talking about the myth of the king asleep in the mountain.
0: Yes. I actually was looking into this a little over a year ago to do the Fairy Tales for Troubled Times essay on Hellboy 2, Mm -hmm. because Hellboy 2 is just a king in the mountain Myth. Prince Nuada disappears only to return when his people need him most. Instead of being asleep in a mountain, he is training in the sewers. But you know It's, it's same thing. There's gonna be some variety in all of the myths yeah. we're about to go through, so that's fine. But yeah, so that movie is a really interesting look at what happens when the king returns. Mm-hmm. Because that's not a situation that we have so much in real life.
1: Yeah. Like in Hellboy 2, it's not always literally a king, and it's not always literally a mountain. And sometimes they're not always asleep. Yep. (laughs) That's just the name of it. Don't be so literal.
0: Well, that's how folklore works. Yeah. Because you have these tropes. We have the whole ATU index, and then there's a different index that's... Like, the ATU is mostly fairy tales and folktales, and then we also have a mythic Mm -hmm. tropes thing. And you don't always get very literal examples of the name of a trope. Mm -hmm. But you can still see how it fits into the story. So the broad strokes of a king in the mountain or a king asleep in the mountain myth is that a monarch, a legendary hero, or a renowned warrior, sometimes accompanied by their troops or their entourage of whatever description, are said to be not dead but sleeping Mm -hmm. or actually dead but they will rise from the dead uh, at a specified time well unspecified time
1: dead asterisk (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) he's only mostly dead when their country or their people are in peril or when some external criterion is met they will return to save the day The simplicity of the story is part of why it's so well represented in folklore and mythology. The vaguer a folktale type, the more stories can be said to fit it. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, there's mountains everywhere. Sure are. (laughs) I'm not sure if you noticed, but they're fucking everywhere. And that's popped up in this season before as well. Mm -hmm. Like, there's just mountains everywhere. And, I mean, they're huge. Yeah. And really Mm awe-inspiring and just incredible... Like, you can see mountains in the distance and not really think about it, but mm-hmm. then you get up close to one, it's like, holy shit. Yeah. So it's easy to see why mountains figure so much in so many different kinds mm. of myth and folkloric stories.
1: Yeah. Even just, like, large hills are impressive, you know?
0: <laughs> I mean, you've also got, like, the she. Yeah. So you got small hills <laughs> mm-hmm. also are something. People just look at the world and go... What if there was a guy in there? Mm -hmm. And that's valid. And we get so many cool stories out of that. I think another component of why King in the Mountain myths are so widespread and also so popular still is that just on a very human level, we we want to believe in that deus ex machina. Mm -hmm. When things seem hopeless, we want to believe that there's still some hope, no matter how far-fetched. I've actually, part of the reason I wanted to do this episode is because I've seen a real increase in popularity of King of the Mountain myths. Yeah. Like on social media <laughs> since roughly around the time of Brexit. I think it was immediately post-Brexit. People mm-hmm. started joking about, all right, King Arthur, time's a-wasting, Judge Judy gif. Yeah. <laughs> Also, during the very early pandemic months when we were all baking up a storm, there were all these jokes about King Arthur Flour, which is a, an American company mm-hmm. uh, whose products are genuinely very, very good. I am sad you can't get them here. But people were saying, you know, King Arthur has returned in our time of greatest need.
1: He has risen.
0: He has risen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's classic Faye rules. Mm-hmm. Y- you said that King Arthur would, would rise and, well technically he it did has, yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: just in an oven and a delicious loaf of bread
0: yeah but it's interesting to me that we turned in these recent times of upheaval yeah. to king and the mountain myths mm-hmm. specifically king arthur in these two examples mm-hmm. but i think throughout history you see this happen where there's a spike in the popularity of these myths mm-hmm. when things seem increasingly hopeless mm-hmm.
1: Things have been going steadily downhill since the end of 2012, which is when BBC's Merlin ended. <laughs> and uh, it's been 10 years. Spoilers. Arthur dies at the end. So it's like, uh, well, Arthur died and then things have been shit. Uh, so Yes, it was like that in real life, too. Let's get a reboot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you really want a reboot? No. <laughs> I didn't think so.
1: <laughs> Just some new Arthuriana might um
0: help question mark it couldn't hurt yeah (laughs) (laughs) why don't we start going through the kings in the mountains Mm -hmm. uh with king arthur because if you know any of these you're gonna know king arthur Mm -hmm. he's kind of the perfect example of the subject of a king in the mountain myth the debate over whether arthur was a historical figure or a fictional legendary hero has been raging for centuries and will not be resolved anytime soon. Mm -hmm. There are accounts of his having fought in several battles between the Britons and Anglo-Saxons, records of his grave being found in several places, and contemporary records laying down the belief that he wasn't dead but would return when Britain needed him. So he fits the bill no matter which way you look at it. Mm -hmm. The first record of the story that he will come back Mm Uh, is from the 12th century. William of Malmesbury wrote that because Arthur's grave was nowhere to be found, the belief holds that he's coming back. I can't remember exactly the year of this one, but like 30 years after he wrote that was the first time somebody was like, hey, I found Arthur's grave. <laughs> so I don't actually know what his response to that would have been. Uh-huh. But he wrote, people believe that Arthur will come back when we need him most, and that's because no one's found his grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to point out here something very important that we will return to multiple times. The sources on the story of Arthur returning are Breton, Cornish, and Britain. The notable exception there is Welsh. Mm -hmm. We will come back to this, but do remember I've put a pin in it. We will come back to this pin. Because if you know anything about... Arthurian legend, you probably know that it's largely Welsh mm-hmm. in origin. So there's no Welsh in that list, and there's a reason for this, and we'll come back to it. Belief in Arthur's return seems to have been very serious. When Philip II of Spain married Mary I of England, he had to promise that if Arthur returned, he would resign from the throne. Mm-hmm. It is, again, a 12th century source that Avalon is where Arthur sleeps. Various other sources say that Arthur sleeps beneath an unspecified mountain, and other interpretations of that say he sleeps in the other world or an underworld of whichever tradition you're following. Mm -hmm. We mentioned last time that some stories even say Arthur is out leading the wild hunt until it's time to come back to save Britain.
1: Yeah, along with Hela and Mm
0: -hmm. Francis Drake. Yeah, I was going to say, we've got a couple more in here as well, but they they might be out, they might be sleeping, they might be resting, they might be out leading the wild hunt Mm -hmm. until it's time to come back and save the day. But they're doing something.
1: They're busy. Yeah. And yes, sleeping can be being busy. That's true. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Mm
0: -hmm. The Plantagenets and the Tudors both used the myth of Arthur to legitimize their own reigns. It's always very interesting when mythology is used for political purposes. Yeah. The Plantagenets mostly used it against Wales. Remember, the Welsh traditions, notably, have no record of ever believing in Arthur's return. And all sources around the Plantagenets' time that point to it are English.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the Plantagenets claimed that they were uh, descendants of Arthur and entitled to his legacy of a unified Britain. Sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't have time to get into the the Wars of the Roses and (laughs) all of that right now. Sincerely, not the scope of this podcast, but it's safe to generalize that a lot of the politics of the time were people seizing power and then coming up with reasons to justify why
1: they deserved to keep that power.
0: Yes. Arthur is a very convenient Mm -hmm. way to do that because he's not, I mean, he might. Come back and challenge you about it, but if you're willing to take the risk, mm-hmm. you can probably get away with it. The Tudors also had genealogies drawn up to prove their lineage from Arthur, which justified their seize of power. <laughs> Super fun! Ah, mm-hmm. oh, the Tudors.
1: Yeah, Henry VIII's older brother, who would have been king, mm-hmm. was called Arthur, mm-hmm.
0: and that was not a random choice.
1: No. Catherine of Aragon's first husband, you may recall. Or, maybe, you, maybe, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe you're...
0: <laughs> if you're American and you didn't learn about the Tudors, mm-hmm. here's, here's our little crash course. So Catherine of Aragon was briefly married to Arthur Tudor, who was Henry VIII's older brother. Mm-hmm. Arthur died, and just for economy, they then married Catherine to Henry VIII, and he convinced himself that his inability to produce a male heir was because he had married his brother's widow. And so there was this whole thing about Catherine having to prove that she never actually slept with Arthur. And also Henry already, like, having his eye on Anne Boleyn, Mm -hmm. so he wasn't really interested in any excuses or anything. And then the Pope got involved. Anyway, (laughs) we're not here to talk about the rest of that. But Arthur, that's why. Yes. And they're still doing this shit.
1: Yeah, um, it's both... William's middle name. It's one of Louis' middle names. Mm-hmm. One of, because you can't just have one name. you got to have, like, five names.
0: Yeah, I think it is his primary middle name. But, yeah, they, I think I remember there was some discussion about what name Charles would take when he took the throne. And there was some speculation that he might take Arthur. He didn't, mm-hmm. but... Arthur is still in William's name and in Louis's name. And I wonder, this is complete speculation on my mm-hmm. part, but I'm not sure how much they anticipated the sharp decline in the monarchy's popularity after Elizabeth's death, because that's a thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. And a reaction to an anticipated time of upheaval and difficulty coming in with monarchs who have Arthur in their names.
1: Yeah.
0: That feels like a calculated thing to me, mm-hmm. but again, complete speculation on my point.
2: Yeah,
0: Using folklore and mythology like this is a way to strategically legitimize a reign or to like connect yourself with mm-hmm. your land and your people. So I have already returned to the, the Welsh pin, but we're gonna return to it again. So you may be wondering, why not Arthur for Wales? Because Arthurian myth is largely Welsh. The stories are, in their first written variants, Welsh. So why don't they have a myth of Arthur coming back? Why is that not something the Welsh are into? The answer is that Wales has its own separate myth of a king in the mountain.
1: I would say that the other reason is that like the English stole Arthur.
0: Yes, we're going to get to that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, Imab Drogon mm-hmm. predates England taking Arthur, essentially. Yeah. So there was already an existing tradition of the foretold son, which is what Imab Drogan translates to. So it's a term that was applied to a few figures across Welsh history, it's essentially like the prophecy existed, and so every time a likely candidate popped up, people would be like, "Oh, this might be Mab de Rogan. Might be him?" Yeah, So we had a, f- a first few rounds of people who were potentially Mab de Rogan, And the legend kind of shifts over time. So the, the idea was that this foretold sun would rise to drive invaders out of Britain. And over time, as it gets applied to different figures in Welsh history and the way that Welsh history goes, which is essentially fighting against England, it shifts from driving invaders out of Britain to driving invaders out of Wales specifically. Mm -hmm. So instead of Mabdurogen being like a legendary protector of... Britain more widely, he becomes very, very Welsh. And he often becomes the protector of Wales against England. Yeah. So this shift happens over time. And then we get to Owen Glendower. He is the reason that England would prefer that Wales thought Arthur was Mabderogan. And that's why there are Plantagenet era sources english sources saying that oh the welsh believe that arthur is the foretold son and that's not something the welsh thought the english would just really like them to have thought that yeah but yes as you said at this time arthur had kind of been claimed as a in quotes, pan british figure but functionally he was english yeah The English had just taken Arthur Mm -hmm. and now they would really like if the Welsh would just go along with it. And so Owen Glendower is very inconvenient for them in many ways because he was also, he's a real historical person Mm -hmm. who existed for sure. So that ambiguity with Arthur and that mythic quality that comes with some of the other Kings in the Mountains is not present here. This is where we get, I mean, this isn't the first actual legendary person That existed and becomes a king in the mountain Mm -hmm. but that's the difference between him and arthur is arthur has this ambiguity this mythic quality to him and owen glendower does not Mm -hmm. he's just a real person Mm -hmm. and he led a 15-year revolt against the english trying to drive them out of wales he was successful for a while but eventually the rebellion did fail the important thing is he didn't get captured He never betrayed his people. He was never betrayed by his people. He never surrendered. He never apologized. And potentially, he never died (laughs) Mm -hmm. because he disappeared. And that's perhaps the most important part of this myth is that we don't know how he died. Mm -hmm. That said, his death was recorded in 1415. But the chronicler said that his enemies found the grave and he had to be reburied in a secret place no one could find. There have also been several, I saw the grave of Owen Glendower type claims mm-hmm. and claims from supposed direct descendants who say that it's a family secret and they will not tell you where he is buried. At most, they'll, they'll be like, he's under a mound. And you know how few mounds there are.
1: In <laughs> Wales. <laughs> so that's it's... like say, that's like being in Wales and saying, yeah, he's in a castle.
0: Mm-hmm. Good fucking luck. Mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah, go find him. He's in a castle. That's all I'm telling you.
1: Yeah, for those not in the know, there are about 600 castles.
0: I think that's a conservative estimate, In Wales alone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so there's still this ambiguity about his death. And potentially, he never died. And he simply sleeps somewhere waiting to come back and save Wales. So yeah... He still gets invoked in lots of Welsh independence discussions to this day. Mm -hmm. There was a group in the 80s that called themselves the Sons of Glendower, who took credit for burning English holiday homes in Wales. And I know this was in the 80s, but this also feels like something that happened very recently. I can't Mm -hmm. remember if it did or not. But Welsh independence has been increasing in talks, I would say. Mm -hmm. Much like Scottish independence as well.
1: Yeah, like the Welsh are just quieter about it i suppose than the scottish
0: sometimes (laughs) Mm -hmm. i guess overall yes it's also potentially there is no to my knowledge there is no scottish tradition of a king in the mountain yeah so wales has owen clindauer coming back for them at some point Mm -hmm. uh scotland's on their own if they want it to happen they gotta make it happen again Mm -hmm. completely conjecture but but uh, these myths also have power even if, oh, yeah. even if you don't necessarily know all the details of it, there's a cultural drive behind it where just having the tradition of Owen Glendower shapes a lot of the way that the Welsh, like broadly speaking, think. Or like the broader concepts of the nation and mm-hmm. what it means in relation to England and the UK as a whole. Interesting stuff. So when somebody disappears, like Owen Glendower did, it's very easy to come up with a sort of king of the mountain type myth about them and another disappearance that led to one of these myths is sebastian I of portugal what
1: sorry <laughs> i was just like who famous disappearances and then i was like oh america can have db cooper <laughs> <laughs> the king <of> the mountain. <laughs> you know what honestly
0: that i didn't put it in here but there is a uh, there is a QAnon thing About JFK coming back from the dead.
1: No, let's have it be DB Cooper <laughs> yeah, I know comes back to just pull more great heists and <laughs> take down the capitalists.
0: Honestly, genuinely, I want this to be a myth. Mm-hmm. I, I want people to genuinely believe in this. Mm-hmm. I want to believe in it.
1: I mean, I think it's too recent to become mythic, but maybe yeah. in a few hundred years, DB Cooper will be a king in the mountain.
0: That said, it doesn't take that long for these myths to pop up Mm. Um, Owen Glendower popped up pretty fast because they didn't want to lose him they didn't want him to be gone and it was more convenient to be like well if he is gone he's coming back yeah and as we'll see with Sebastian there were people less than 30 years after his death that started working on like evangelizing his messianic Mm. return so it doesn't necessarily take that long fair enough So he was only 24 when he disappeared in battle. He had officially taken the throne when he was three years old. Obviously, there was some Regency stuff happening. So his actual reign was pretty short. And as a benefit of having a short reign, he was able to just do some really great stuff without really getting to a point where he had to do some really bad stuff. He put in healthcare provisions for women and children. He set up two new hospitals for victims of the plague. He put in an extensive set of reforms for farmers, which set up this lending system. So if they had poor crops, they weren't going to be unable to afford the tools they needed for the next year. Mm -hmm. And once they got back on their feet, there was a system for them to pay back their debt in crops Mm -hmm. rather than in money. So it was... He was a really popular ruler. Yeah. And he did some genuinely really positive things. And then he went off on a crusade and disappeared. Mm -hmm. So I said he's on the crusades. Yeah, he very likely just died in battle. Mm -hmm. Um, They tried to find his corpse though. They could not identify him. So... While, yes, it is most probable that he died in battle, people are like, we couldn't find him. We can't verify it. He's disappeared. And that's very convenient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if he's not verifiably dead, he could be coming back. So in the first few years after his disappearance in battle, several pretenders popped up claiming to be him. All were proved imposters. Two of them were hanged. (laughs) It's a risk you take. Yeah, Uh... (laughs) 50%... Is that right? I think there were four of them. Two were hanged. One had his sentence commuted to community service, basically. And the other one was institutionalized. I think he was also, the one that was institutionalized was in Spain, and he didn't speak any Portuguese. So... Yeah, that
1: claim was really not going anywhere.
0: Yeah, that was the most tenuous of them, I believe. Yeah. But 50% shot of not being hanged. Pretty, pretty decent. The impostors stopped showing up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I said, 50% is a pretty good shot, but it's also a 50% shot of dying, so... Yeah. May- maybe don't. Maybe don't. Once the time period in which he could conceivably have reappeared passed, the story became a King in the Mountain myth. Dom Hau de Castro wrote of Sebastian as the Hidden One and used all kinds of flowery language. It's a very, very poetic piece of writing. Mm. And like reading it, you would think, oh yeah, this has definitely been a, a beautiful legend from many, many years ago that we were going to have this hidden prince who would come save us eventually. So he claims that he disappeared to the shrouded island to wait until an unspecified point in the future where he will return and unite Portugal with all Christian nations in a fifth empire. I don't know what the plan is. I guess conquering all the non-Christian nations?
1: I mean, this is Crusades. This is just
0: Crusade shit. Yeah. So presumably that's what the the plan at this point in time was. But he does come up with this very elaborate King in the Mountain myth for Sebastian as this prophesied leader Mm -hmm. who will return and do some Crusade shit. And much like... Arthur, the the belief in this was very serious. Mm -hmm. John IV of Portugal had to swear to relinquish his throne to Sebastian if Sebastian returned.
1: Just imagining like, I know that times don't overlap, Mm -hmm. but just Philip II and John IV being like, what is this shit, (laughs) man? We've got a promise to give up our thrones if some dead dude comes back.
0: Do you think he's coming back? That's the thing, is you can swear it What are the odds? What are the odds? So Portuguese folklore in its colonies often includes stories of an enchanted king on a white horse. These stories honestly sound more like the Wild Hunt, because he is seen at night on full moons or holy days Mm -hmm. at the front of a procession of his retinue or his troops Mm -hmm. uh, behind him. And if anyone sees the procession, the king will stop and hold up his hand and ask them a simple question if they get it right they break the spell that the king is under but if they get it wrong he disappears and will return another night
1: it is interesting the overlap between the wild hunt and the king of the mountain
0: mm-hmm.
1: well what's he been doing why isn't he here yeah know, why is
0: why is this loser sleeping why is
1: <laughs> yeah it's like we want a really cool like warrior type to come back so i don't know we've got this other thing where people just ride around being badass and Hunting and leading warriors. Let's do that. He's doing that. That's yeah. what he's doing.
0: Sleeping does count as doing stuff. Yeah. But okay. also, I can see where they could be like, he's been sleeping and we've been suffering this whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't going to help us. No, he's busy on the wild hunt. It's fine. There's a very interesting thing in Brazil, which as you know...
1: Portuguese colony. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so when the state went secular, there was a Big backlash because there's obviously a very large Catholic population and Catholicism and the monarchy were very much intertwined. So when we no longer had a monarchy and when Catholicism stopped being the law, you start to get stories of Sebastian coming back to defend the divine right of the Brazilian monarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's very interesting that Sebastian popped up there and this was you know quite some time later like we were just hanging on to the story of sebastian in the back of our minds in case something bad happened (laughs) and now hey something bad has happened i've remembered a thing sebastian Mm -hmm. he's coming back for us he's gonna fix this spoiler he didn't Mm -hmm. but i guess he still might
1: sorry i'm just thinking of all of things. come to brazil (laughs) sebastian sebastian come to
0: brazil (laughs) Hey, guess who's back?
1: Finn and the gang? Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) They're
0: here again! It's McCool and the gang. Oh gosh, he's everywhere, this guy. Mm -hmm. So yes, Finn McCool, once again. We have an Irish king in the mountain, who's also on the wild hunt. Mm -hmm. As you can probably tell by how often he pops up on this podcast. There are a lot of stories about him. There's one story we haven't told yet, where he eats the salmon of knowledge... Or doesn't, but still gains its knowledge. So there's a version of the story where like, he's cooking the salmon for some poet bard guy. I can't remember who. But he burns his thumb while he's cooking the salmon and just instinctively puts his burned thumb in his mouth. And somehow that imbues him with the salmon's knowledge. Sure. Yeah. But in some of them, he does just eat it and then he gets the knowledge. But it's interesting how many different associations there are with Finn. Like, he's incredibly wise, and he's also an incredible warrior, and he just does fucking everything. Most of his stories are about defeating great and dangerous beings, usually associated with the Tuatha de Danann. He is very much your standard legendary hero figure. It makes sense that he would be a king King of the mountain as well. So according to this legend, he sleeps in a literal mountain. So thus far, we've had the island of Avalon, a potential unnamed mound somewhere in Wales.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And now we have a for real mountain. Ooh, Yes. So he is surrounded by the Fianna, who are essentially his troops, his band of warriors. And the hunting horn of the Fianna, I don't know if it's meant to like be in that same hall or if it's running around out there somewhere. Mm. But someday, the Dordfian, which is the hunting horn, will be sounded three times during a time of great need. And then Finn and the Fiana will return to defend Ireland.
1: Pints with the lads.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, when, when Finn comes back, we'll be like, my dude, you missed out on all of Hozier. So yeah. here's some CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, before you go defend Ireland, I just need to catch <laughs> you up real quick. This is what you're defending. Yeah, this is what you're defending. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Because Finn so often fought the Tuatha day, mm. and um, Hozier is clearly a fey creature,
2: mm.
0: maybe we shouldn't. Because maybe then he'll think, like, oh, you want me to fight this guy, and I sincerely don't want you to fight <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: sure. No, leave Andrew alone.
0: Oh, sweet Andrew. <laughs> so we've um, had our literal king in the mountain. Mm-hmm. How about we have somebody who's neither a king nor in the mountain? But
1: in a nice segue, we'll also come back when an instrument is played.
0: yeah. So this is one of those cool king-in-the-mountain things that is... It's not a king-in-the-mountain, but it is recognizably the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, And I love that. This is Sir Francis Drake. We may have mentioned this on the podcast before. I think Pod Friend of the Pod, the People's Polygraph, has also talked about this.
1: We did mention it literally in the last episode as well.
0: Yes. But yeah, the story is that on Sir Francis Drake's deathbed, he was near Panama at this time, he ordered this drum sent back to England, and he said that if ever England was in grave danger, someone should beat the drum, and that hearing it, he will return to save England from whatever is going on that made somebody beat the drum. Fam, have we tried? I just, we know where the drum is. The one that is on display in the Plymouth Museum is a recreation. Mm -hmm. The original is held at Buckland Abbey, which I believe is where Drake's family was slash remained.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like family studying in Devon. Mm-hmm. Near d- Dartmoor, where he's also on the Wild Hunt.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not that far. Mm-hmm. He can just pop back. Mm-hmm. We'll just hit the drum, and he can just pop back from the Wild Hunt. We'll get this sorted. But I don't believe the one at Buckland Abbey is on display. I believe they have it in storage somewhere. Presumably well preserved.
1: It's just in a box in the, in the loft, and... That's why nobody's got around to.
0: I want to believe, <laughs> knowing what I know of the National Trust, I want to believe that they have conservators on it and that it's being taken care of and is fine. But what happened between it making its way back from Panama and the National Trust getting hold of the estate? That's where we may run into some trouble. Yeah. So I said if you've heard of any of these guys, you've heard of King Arthur. You've probably heard of Charlemagne too. He's often referred to as a king in the mountain without any specific myth being attached to him. I could not find a single story about Charlemagne returning, other than people are like, "Yeah, he might return one day." Here's the thing, though. I think that may have happened, and we we got Christopher Lee, and that yeah. was and that was Charlemagne, and he came back, and now he's gone again, sadly, mm-hmm. but. You know what? If there was no particular story to it, I'm comfortable with saying that it was Christopher Lee.
1: Yeah, that checks out. I'll add that to my, my <laughs> worldview. <laughs> yeah,
0: Didn't I'll he... incorporate that into my worldview. Yeah. Didn't he do that metal album about Charlemagne? He certainly did. Yeah. I've listened to it. It's not really my thing, but I appreciate that it exists and that mm. he made it yeah. and I love him. So, Geoffrey of Monmouth is one of the most famous Arthurian chroniclers, and he based many of his Arthur stories on Charlemagne.
1: Geoffrey of Monmouth's just such a guy. but um, <laughs>
0: He sure is.
1: It always cracked me up that he's just a character in BBC Merlin.
0: Well, yeah, how else is he going to chronicle everything?
1: Yeah, he's just the guy that like lives in the library. He's like the librarian at Camelot.
0: That's cute. Mm-hmm. I do like that. He has
1: a big bushy beard.
0: But yeah, I do wonder if maybe the attribution of Charlemagne as a king in the mountain just comes from the Arthurian connection. connection. yeah. So Charlemagne had 12 paladins who became, in the stories, the Knights of the Round Table. One of those paladins, known as Ogier the Dane, and he himself <laughs> has a king in the mountain myth. Uh, And it is much more detailed than the Charlemagne, which is why I think Charlemagne is just an Arthur connection. Mm. But Ogier the Dane has a lot more going on. Yeah. So the story is that he fought for Charlemagne against the Saracens, turned rebel and fought against Charlemagne. And then at some point they reconcile and then they together fight the Saracens again. The thing is, I can't make military stories sound interesting because I'm not interested in them. I was reading this and trying to make it interesting. I'm like, it's just battles all the way down. And then he is fighting someone else, and then he's fighting the same guy again. During the Renaissance, Ogier starts to pop up in actual Arthurian myth. There's one story that I really like where he just pops over to Avalon and starts getting it on with Morgan Le Fay. Good for him. Yeah, good for both of them. Yeah. So there are several characters that go by the moniker the Red Knight in Arthurian myth, and sometimes it's Ogier under the helmet. Sometimes it is not. The Danish version of the story is, again, very sparse. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like the historical record of the whole Charlemagne business. Um, but there is, there is a mythic story where he fights a troll named Bermond to cement his hero status. So Ogir is another one who is neither a king nor in a mountain. But he sleeps in Kronberg Castle, which you may recognize as Elsinore from Hamlet. And he he sits in this throne and he's sleeping in the throne and his beard has grown like so long that it's on the floor. And he's just sleeping in the castle waiting for the time that he's needed to arise and save Denmark. So this castle is like open to the public <laughs> <laughs> so you can visit it, but there is a statue of Ogir the Dane. Uh, In his throne, like sleeping, his beard is very long. So you can see that statue at Kronberg Castle. That's cool. It is very cool. Hans Christian Andersen, bringing him back from fairy tale season. Obviously, we've got a Danish folkloric hero here. So Hans Christian Andersen wrote a very short piece called Holger Danske, which is about Ogier, and that is his Danish name. The piece itself doesn't focus so much at all on Ogier or anything that he did, but it serves as a kind of overview of Danish heroes throughout history and how they're all represented spiritually in Ogier. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thinking also leads to, like, why Ogier becomes a symbol of Danish resistance against the Germans during the Second World War. And it's not so... Like, it is for himself and what he... He was a hero Mm -hmm. and thinking that this great hero is going to come back and save you from occupation is obviously a very powerful thing and would make sense on its own but looking at it through the lens of the anderson piece you kind of see how like everything gets represented in him like every he mentions all of these people throughout danish history and the qualities that make them heroic mm-hmm. and why they are inspirational and how all of those traits are represented in Ogier. So it's kind of this like pan-Danish cultural icon Mm -hmm. who is sleeping in a castle, and he's going to come back and save them. And it's very easy to see how that became a symbol of resistance. On the other hand, we have Frederick Barbarossa, who is a German king who fought in the Crusades, uh, conquered parts of Italy, became the Holy Roman Emperor, Again, his story is so boring to me, it's so boring. I had to teach bits of military history when I was teaching middle school history and I was just like, y'all, I don't care about this at all. I don't, I'm gonna put what I have to put legally on your tests, but I just don't care. So yeah, people can tell you about Frederick Barbarossa if they care, but honestly, if they care, probably a red flag for reasons we will get to. So guess who else is back? It's old Jakey. Old Jakey! It's old Jakey, Jacob Grimm. He's back here again because we're talking about German legend, so here he is. (laughs) So his focus was folklore that supported Germanic identity through culture, as we have discussed. Frederick was his champion of the King of the Mountain myth, and you and I know that this is not a uniquely German thing, but old Jakey. He is about to try to make this a uniquely German thing. So he calls this kind of myth the Kifhäuser myth because Frederick is said to sleep in the Kifhäuser mountains. So obviously, everything else is just a version of the Kifhäuser myth, right? Obviously, Obviously. If there's a German version of it, that's the right one. Yeah, everyone knows this one and King Arthur is not universally recognized. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he is sleeping in this mountain cave. So he sleeps in this cave in the mountains surrounded by his soldiers and i will say the upside of old jakey being involved is that we do get a fun story and so he has this story about a boy who is hiking up the mountains as as german boys apparently do and uh he comes across this cave and goes inside and frederick uh is sitting in a throne surrounded by his soldiers and it looks like everyone is asleep But Frederick's eyes are like half closed and the boy is trying to figure out if he's asleep or awake. Mm -hmm. And Frederick raises his hand and the boy is like startled. And he tells the boy to go out and see if ravens have stopped flying around the cave. So the boy goes and peeks his head out and he sees the ravens are still there. So he comes back and reports this and then Frederick goes back to sleep. So the story goes that if the ravens disappear, he will return presumably to do some more military conquest shit that I don't care about. It's boring. Anyway, that's my opinion. But yeah, so we have kings in the mountain who are symbols of resistance. We've had Glendower. We've got Ogier the Dane. There are more to come. And you'll never guess who picked up this guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know how Rhea mentioned people who care about this guy? It's probably a red flag.
0: Yeah. In case it needs saying, this is a Nazi hero,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it sucks, right? That there there is German folklore and Germanic folklore, and God knows, you know, they've done their shit with the Scandinavians. Yeah. It sucks that these things existed, and then the Nazis picked them up, and now nobody gets to, like, nobody gets to study these things in any way that isn't associated with them because yeah. they ruined it, and that sucks. But also, if somebody says they're, like, really, really interested in Frederick Barbarossa, Mm -hmm. if you, like, mention King in the Mountain and that the first name out of their mouth is Frederick Barbarossa, you're probably dealing with somebody you don't want to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. Probably. Very likely. Let's wash the taste of that out of our mouths with a great one from the Philippines, Bernardo Carpio. So there are a few theories as to which myths he's descended from and what the influences are. But my favorite is that he comes from this much older Tagalog deity, Batala Mikalpo, which I may be mispronouncing, I'm sorry. But it's time! It's sexy myth time. Hooray! I love sexy myth time. So the belief is that whether or not she's single, a woman cannot be saved unless she has a lover. But not to worry, because... If you can't find a lover on your own, there's a guy that's got you. In the mountains, there's this stream with a very narrow bridge across it. You have to go across this treacherous bridge and get to a place called Batala's Abode. And there's a man that waits there. It may or may not be Batala, but it's a guy that is in the place called Batala's Abode. Mm -hmm. And he has vowed to fuck any woman that comes to him for help. So if you're you're worried that your soul will not be saved, you can go to Batala's abode and get Dick down, Mm -hmm. and then you're safe. Praise be. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, apologies to our ace friends. Mm -hmm. This myth is not for you. I am very sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy being in Batala's abode, plus the fact that Batala is associated with earthquakes, may have led to the myth of a guy who is trapped in the mountain, who struggles to get out, cause earthquakes. So there are a few versions of how Bernardo got trapped in the mountain. One is a story of resistance against Spanish occupation, and that's why there's going to be this struggle to get out. Mm -hmm. So Bernardo was the secret love child of the Infanta and Don Sancho. The Infanta's brother, King Alfonso, cloistered the Infanta and had Don Sancho's eyes plucked out before having him put in prison. The Spanish hired an encantado, just kind of shaman figure, to trap Bernardo in the Montalban Mountains, which like his parents were dealt with pretty easily. I feel like we didn't need to do this with yeah. Bernardo, but then there's no story. So the Encantado trapped him between two boulders and I've seen a picture of a place in the Montalban Mountains where there's like two boulders that are kind of sticking out over the water, and that's one of the places. There yeah. there are obviously several places in these mountains where there are two boulders and all of them kind of get pointed to as he's there or Mm -hmm. he's there. But yeah, there seems to have been some expectation that this would kill Bernardo. So again, I'm wondering why we didn't do this in a simpler way. But anyway, Bernardo does not die. He remains trapped between these boulders and he is trying to escape. Every time he makes an attempt, an earthquake occurs. And I love that He's actively trying to get out because a lot of these, they're dead or they're undead. Mm -hmm. They're sleeping, they're resting, or they're on the wild hunt. But this guy is actively fighting against it. He's not waiting for some time in the future. He's trying to get out right now. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, you can draw an obvious line as to why this story would resonate for people struggling under Spanish occupation. Mm Mm-hmm. And this myth had a resurgence during the Second World War when we start to get American occupation and Japanese occupation. There was some, like, official document that somebody turned up in, like, a flurry of American letters where somebody was worried about this myth Mm -hmm. and how the people were clinging to it. They're like, hmm, there's something seditious in this. It's like, gee, you think? Are
1: we the bad guys?
0: Are we the baddies? (laughs) Before we leave Bernardo, because he's great, let's conjure some spirits. Sure. So I wanted to do something for Bernardo because, again, he's cool. He's probably my favorite on this list. But also, it's uh, not that hard to do a Filipino cocktail. So there's a calamansi, which is a Philippine lime. Mm -hmm. So we get calamansi juice. And then I was thinking some light rum, triple sec, Either sparkling water or lemonade. I would probably go sparkling water, but I feel like you would hate that.
1: I mean, I don't mind soda in like soda water Mm -hmm. in a cocktail. Okay. When there's other flavors.
0: I mean, if you just want like a hit of lemon in there too, you can just have the lemonade. But I would probably go sparkling water. But that's just me. And I would like to put fresh chili in this. Mm -hmm. I've had many cocktails over the years with fresh chili in it, and I always love it a lot. Mm -hmm. If you are scared of it. You can probably leave it out. In mm-hmm. that case, I would probably go with lemonade just to have another flavor mm-hmm. in the mix. Because
1: yeah, you were saying like you wanted to put something in there for an extra kick. And yeah. like you had floated the idea of Goldschlager for the cinnamon, but I hate that. Yeah. So I, I'm it, also,
0: I'm not convinced of it myself because I feel yeah. like lime and cinnamon is interesting, but I don't know if I would like it. Yes. But I do mm-hmm. want to try it and find out.
1: So I said, why not chili?
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I've just been thinking about every chili, like every uh, cocktail I've had in my life that has fresh chili in it. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. I don't know how I forgot about it. But yeah, just slice up a little chili and put it in there. It's so good.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you want to call it?
0: I think Batala's Abode is mm-hmm. cool. We can do that.
1: Yeah, that works for a cocktail.
0: And that's our cocktail for this time. And that sounds delicious. And I do want it very badly right now.
1: Mm-hmm. To like a lime and rum Mm -hmm. concoction.
0: I would also like a sticker for doing a good job and not putting ginger in this cocktail, even though I really wanted to. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You could put ginger in it if you wanted to, but... Yeah, it's just like, (laughs) that was
1: the other thing. You were sort of like... I was like, I
0: got to stop putting (laughs) ginger in everything. But the thing is that I love ginger and it's delicious and great.
1: Yeah. But on the other hand, lime and ginger and rum is just a dark and stormy.
0: It is, yes. But also there's triple sec.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh well, that makes all the difference.
0: It does. <laughs> okay. It doesn't. I know that. That's why we put chili in it. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want you to know if you were thinking this would have been really good with ginger. I know. You can put ginger in it. I won't tell anyone. That's fine. While we are on the topic of rebellious kings and mountains, there is an Inca myth of the Incari, and that's another anti-Spanish colonialism legend. Very fun. So, Atahualpa, the last ruler of the Inca, vowed before his death to come back for vengeance. To prevent this, the Spanish buried pieces of his body in different locations, with his head beneath the presidential palace in Lima. But the myth says that the pieces of his body are growing beneath the earth, and one day when they've grown big and strong enough, they'll come back together and Atahualpa will reclaim his kingdom. It's very cool, I like that one a lot. Yeah. Also, maybe if you're playing in a certain on hiatus, D&D game <laughs> that I run you may have yeah
1: I was thinking is that like did you draw from that one specifically
0: well yeah I drew from all a lot of these yeah but specifically that one yeah so not to be confused with the Aztec emperors there is a Pueblo god named Montezuma and he is another king in the mountain coming to save his people from the Spanish mm-hmm. there's a lot of those about yeah. I wonder why this guy's his story might sound a bit familiar at first. He was born from a virgin mm-hmm. and a pine nut. That part's, less. <laughs> <laughs> that part's less familiar. But he was born of a virgin and he performed miracles throughout his young life. He was not the most physically imposing person. He was a little unlikely. But eventually he came to be loved by the people and they made him their leader. He taught them all their customs, including how to build pueblos from adobe, which is... How they got their name. One day, he built a fire and told them they could never let it go out, promised he'd come back one day to save them, and flew away on the back of an eagle. So parts of that sound familiar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No further comment?
1: It's very amusing. It's like, okay, build a fire, don't let it go out. Peace. Yeah. Hop on an eagle and fly away.
0: Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. So presumably he's coming back, which is good.
1: He just went out to get a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. It's fine.
0: He's just on a grocery run. We'll be right back. Uh, in case you thought Dracula was the only undead Shekali you had to worry about, we also have Prince Saba. He is the youngest son of Attila the Hun. He is skilled and successful in battle. Again, the story just bored the shit out of me. So <laughs> <sighs> he's good at war. You know the drill. Moving on. What?
1: I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you gotta be doing interesting stuff outside of your conquests. That's the thing! And have, like, buckets of charisma. Yeah. Like Alexander. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Just please do something that interests me specifically. (laughs) Everyone throughout history... (laughs) Just do things that interest me specifically. I don't think I'm asking (laughs) for mountains to be moved.
1: Moving a mountain would be interesting. Yeah,
0: do that. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying that's specifically what you got to do, but like, I don't know. Learn a musical instrument. Write a poem. Just something outside of killing people, please.
1: Visit Troy and do some lopping as Achilles and Patroclus with your boyfriend.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Very simple. I'm so easily amused. I really am. And all these guys got to be doing their stupid war shit. Anyway, (laughs) so Prince Saba, was really good at fighting, and then he died. And after his death, the Hun's enemies mocked them, saying, who will save you now that Saba is gone? So of course, you issue a challenge like that. And Saba and his troops rode down from the heavens. And there's talk in the stories of this, of there being like some bridge of stars or clouds or a bridge of the heavens. And in some artistic interpretations, it's like the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. So Saba and his troops ride down from the heavens and they drove out the invaders. And then they fucked off again. But this happened several times over the years that like, Enemies were threatening them, and Saba and his troops came down from the heavens. Mm-hmm. So he is still believed to await times that he's needed to defend his people. But his people obviously have changed over time. Yes. So now he's kind of understood as a defender of Hungary. Cool. Mm-hmm. And the given name Saba, which is... I don't know how popular it is, but it, it seems to be a fairly common name. It means gift from the heavens, which is probably an allusion to this myth. Another military leader whose return was feared by his enemies, shall we say? Obviously, Genghis Khan, subject of an excellent Eurovision song.
1: Also a a more recent song of that name.
0: That's true, yes. I also very much like that song. Yeah,
1: with a great music video.
0: Mm -hmm. So we don't have a definitive record of Genghis Khan's death. There are multiple stories. And he asked to be buried without grave markers. So there is a fair amount of obfuscation and uncertainty around his death and burial. And as you probably know, mystery around his death and burial. Mm -hmm. We've got a great military leader whose enemies definitely don't want him to come back. Mm -hmm. Prime real estate for a king in the mountain myth. And there's one story of his death. It says he fell from his horse and was injured. But when he went to recuperate, no one knew if he died or recovered. And he just disappeared after that. Mm -hmm. There's a Chinese legend that every year a sacrifice was made in his memory. And after the sacrifice was done, then two white horses would appear. These were apparently meant to be Genghis Khan's own horses. Mm -hmm. So one year, only one horse showed up. And then when the second horse appeared later, it showed evidence of having been saddled and recently ridden. So this was taken as an omen that Genghis Khan was preparing to return. He obviously didn't return immediately, but it's still recent enough that (laughs) the threat could still be there, really. I don't know if people are still sacrificing anything to his memory, Um, so time will tell. We'll see. On a similar note of vagary, (laughs) there is an Uta tribe legend about the Uta Mountain within the Uta Mountains. It's a mountain range in Colorado, and this particular mountain is either called Uta Mountain or Sleeping Uta Mountain. The legend is of a great warrior god who was also a chief of the Uta, and he fell asleep while recovering from wounds from a battle. Presumably, one day he'll be fully recovered and he will wake up, but what happens then is either not disclosed or not defined. It's entirely possible that... Just that sketch of the story is all that we're allowed to know, and that's entirely fine, if so.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's also possible that there's simply no more to that story, and that the story is just, see the weird shape of that mountain? It's actually a sleeping guy. Yeah, Both are possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Because it's this kind of vague thing with just a few beats to hit before it's kind of like yeah that's a thing that i recognize and that resonates you get a lot of fictional versions of this it, it is a recurring theme in fiction like you yeah. mentioned hellboy mm-hmm. at the beginning but like it's very cool obviously you used it yourself in dnd
0: <laughs> i think more people should use myths in dnd mm-hmm. they're they're very fun yeah. to play with
1: and you know Always, but currently on uh, Zelda kick. Mm-hmm. Link.
0: Link is absolutely a king in the mountain. A king in the mountain. Yeah.
1: Literally in Breath of the Wild, he mm-hmm. is sleeping in a mountain and comes back when Hyrule's need is greatest.
0: Yes. Literally, Link is a king in the mountain. Yeah. And I thought about mentioning that in this outline, but then mm. I was like, we're, we're doing a whole episode. Yeah spoiler alert we're doing a whole episode on legend of zelda and mythology Mm -hmm. so i was like maybe i'll let james tuck that one away for later (laughs) or we can mention it now (laughs) yeah i
1: mean like because there's so many more things like i might as well mention it now because it is far from the only mythic connection in that series it's Uh,
0: called the legend of zelda mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's it's all legends
1: yeah yeah he's a king in the mountain you have the Barbarossa one reminded mm-hmm. me of the Army of the Dead in Lord of the Rings. Yep. Whereas the king is waiting to fulfill a, an unfulfilled oath. Mm hmm. You know, waiting to fulfill that oath and, and do penance for betraying their initial oath.
0: Mm hmm. And certainly Tolkien would have been familiar mm-hmm. with the Kifhäuser myth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the only one. The only one.
1: Yeah. Even um, the the prince that was promised in A Song of Ice and Fire yeah. is the same thing. Just waiting for a promised prince who will come and save us mm-hmm. when our need is great. Yep. It shows up all the time, especially in fantasy.
0: Yeah. And it's partially because it's so vague, it can apply to so many things. But also, it's just... It's a story that resonates with everyone. Like, it's just a very human mm-hmm. thing to to dream of this divine intervention, basically. So many of these, like Bernardo Carpio and Ogier the Dane and Owen Glendower, these are stories from people who have been historically disenfranchised and hurt and have struggled. Mm-hmm. And their kings and mountains are largely driven by hope in the depths of despair Mm
2: -hmm.
0: where like you look around and you cannot see a way out things are so bad for you and for everyone and for the whole country it doesn't seem like this is fixable by your own hands Mm -hmm. so it is comforting and hopeful to think of a king in the mountain who is going to come and save you and then on the other hand, you have the ones that function as threats, like Frederick <laughs> Barbarossa and Prince Saba trying to keep dissenters and enemies at bay.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, there are just a lot of functions of this myth that just speak to cultures across time because it's just a reaction to things that happen in the human experience. Mm-hmm. Just not to say they have to happen, but they have happened, and they are happening, and they will keep happening. And so we are always going to have kings and mountains. Mm -hmm. That's all from us this week. You can find all the links to support the podcast and keep in touch at bio.link slash etherandicore.
1: We'll be back in two weeks talking about the cult of Mithras. For now, we'll lift a glass and say goodnight.
0: Pleasant dreams.